for the majority of my life, I have not had to deal with serious discouragement and really not even known what it was. Everybody deals with discouragement, but nothing serious. But in recent years, it's been a, a temptation more than any other time in my life. It's been an unwelcome companion. And I've had to learn how to deal with it for Jesus' sake um, and also for the sake of other people that I love. These past few Sundays, uh, we talked about healing and God's power that He can heal us. He can heal us physically, and He can also heal our mind. And uh, you can dive pretty deep in some of these things. I've just selected four areas, common areas that people struggle with in their mind. Uh, One is guilt. People struggle with guilt. A lot of people... I believe are genuinely saved, but they've never known how to deal with the guilt even after they trusted Christ for forgiveness from things that have been done many, many years ago. And the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, comes and constantly barrages them. And we talked about that. And then God can heal you from cynicism, a poor attitude, a negative spirit. We talked two Sundays about that. And today I want to look in the Bible about the truth that God can heal you from discouragement. And uh, my voice is not real strong, so I want you to listen carefully. Uh, And I want to talk to you about healing from a discouraged mind. Now, usually we say a discouraged heart, and the words are really interchangeable because your mind is your heart. It can include your emotion. But I want to kind of limit the usage to the mind. And I'll probably speak on this uh, next week, too. I'm not going to finish it this morning. One of my favorite quotes from John Wayne is this, is that life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. And that's true, isn't it? It's not in the Bible, but uh, it's it's like the 11th commandment, you know. Life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. And uh, all of us have been stupid, right? But life is very hard. And uh, if we don't bring the pain and the hurt from from just, even when we're not stupid, just from life, because we're sinners and because we live in a world of sin, we don't bring that to Christ. We try to work everything out ourselves. Only God can heal that. Then the situation gets worse. And then what happens, because I'm a pastor, I, I deal with people like this regularly. When we refuse to give it to Him and we want to work it out ourselves, the situation gets worse, and then we blame God for it. And the whole time He's there saying, hey, I want to help you with this. I wrote a book about it. And the answer is in the book. Uh, we can look in the book together. I'll show you what I wrote, and I can give you some answers. So this morning, I want us to look in the Word of God and... Find out what it has to say about discouragement and how that God can heal you from discouragement in your mind. Now, as I said, everybody gets discouraged. But if you do not treat your discouragement, it turns into depression. And then depression turns into despair. And that's a cycle. There's some other aspects. I don't know that I'll get to that this morning. But discouragement turns into depression if you don't take care of it every time. And then depression turns into despair. Your Bible is open there in Numbers chapter 21. Notice in verse 4, just going to pick this verse. It's about the children of Israel. Uh, They're in the wilderness there. Numbers 21, 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way, the Red Sea there in Egypt. To compass the land of Edom. Here's the line I want you to see. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Every time I read that verse, I don't go to the next verse. There's a lot of good things in this chapter, helpful things. But I just stop and I read that and it settles in on me. First of all, as a pastor, I think about other people that are going through some things. And, and sometimes I think about myself. 
It just causes me to stop and think and pray. And the soul of the people was much discouraged. In the Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, those two words, much discouraged, mean to mourn and to grieve. They were mourning, M-O-U-R-N. They were grieving, much discouraged because of the way. Are you discouraged this morning because of the way of life, because of some things that have happened recently or in your past or about to happen? Um, Can I tell you something? It's not always wrong to be discouraged. It's natural to be discouraged. I'll talk to you about what that means in a moment. But I want you to notice, look at the text again. The Bible says the soul of the people, the soul of the people. Discouragement is always internal. I believe that uh, physical pain is, is really bad, but worse than physical pain is emotional pain. These people were overwhelmed. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. I'm drawn to that verse, I think, as a pastor. But I'm also drawn to it because I've experienced it. And you have too. If you're older and and some of you that are young people, maybe have gone through some things. Much discouraged because of the way. Discouragement is a common and favorite tactic of the enemy. Many Christians, they walk into church and they're discouraged and, and nobody knows it. In fact, the odds are high. The odds are high that someone beside you on either side or someone in front or behind of you is here this morning and to some degree they're going through discouragement, but you don't know it. You would be surprised sometimes at who discour- that, that who's discouraged. Now, some people hide it better. Some people have a natural disposition. And they're able to kind of override it a little bit. Maybe they have a little stronger constitution or whatever. But there are some people that are, that are warned this morning. You're much discouraged. Your way has been hard. Um, and sometimes it's just easy. Well, well just, just smile. Just be happy. You know, I'm happy. Shut up. <laughs> Job's friends. Uh, Job's friends weren't much of a help, were they? I remember, I think I shared this verse with you a couple of weeks ago in Job chapter 2. When they got there and they saw his grief. And they saw his body. And it hit hit them that he'd lost his children. And he lost everything he had. And they just sat there for seven days and they didn't say a word. They were overwhelmed. And then they got accustomed to his sorrow. But he didn't. But they got accustomed to his sorrow. And whether it's your children or your parents or your brother or your sister or your brother and sister in the Lord or, or a stranger you don't know. Develop a compassion for people. Um, compassion is a compound word. It's two words that make one word. And it means to suffer with. And it really has a deeper meaning. It means to suffer the same as. One man put it this way. Compassion is your hurt and my heart. I feel it as best I can. You'd be surprised at, at who is discouraged let me share a few with you. Uh, someone wrote this. Listen to this. They wrote this in a letter. They said, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. That is, be better. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better as it appears to me. He he sent this to a friend in a letter. And he he was just uh, melancholy. And he was so overwhelmed by some circumstances. He'd gone through some terrible things. 
that his friends were concerned about him, and they, when he was with them, they literally hid knives, razors, and dangerous things. They were concerned for his safety. He wrote this letter when he was 32 years old in January of 1841. Abraham Lincoln wrote those words. I, I uh, you know, we've, we've seen pictures of Lincoln, but his, his biographers that quote other people, they talked about Lincoln and they said that his eyes, he had soulful eyes. He had sorrowful eyes. He was a great leader, but, but he was a sorrowful leader. He was a man that had some emotional depth that carried some things to him. Here's, a, here's another man, great man, and a, a biography wrote this about him. From the age of 33, physical pain became a large and constant feature of life for him. He suffered from a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease, as well as gout, rheumatism, and neuritis, which as I look this up, it's a, it's a nerve condition, and I won't go into it, but it's very painful. The pain was such that it soon kept him from preaching. He was a pastor. It kept him from preaching for one-third of the time. So he only was able to speak to his people one-third of the time. Added to that, overwork, stress, and guilt about the stress began to take their toll. And all of this was in the public eye, and he was jumped on by many of his critics, not making it easier to bear. The suffering, they argued, was a judgment from God. There was an artist that was uh, painting his portrait, and after much frustration in one of the sessions, said, uh, I can't paint you. Your face is different every day. Let that settle in on you just a moment. Well, smile. You ever hurt physically? You, you, your face looks like you're hurting. I am. After he passed away, they, he had an enormous library. They went into his library and they discovered that he owned more than 30 books on mental health. He read about depression. He wrote about depression. And he suffered from depression. In his letters to other people... They contain numerous references to his, he called them sinking spirits. And he often called himself a prisoner. And he would often weep without knowing why. And I quote from him now. He said, I had been very ill for more than five weeks. And during that time, I had been brought into deep waters of depression. I cannot tell you by letter what I have endured in the desertion of my own men. I have suffered enough for one lifetime from those I lived to serve. Later on, he said that this made him a more effective preacher and pastor. <clears throat> and it did. But can you imagine the price he paid? That was one of the greatest preachers in the world, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I read his biography a couple months ago. and His wife was, was a, an incredible lady. And how that she cared for him and so forth. She, she was a sick lady. And she, there were years that she didn't go to church one Sunday. Not because of discouragement, because of her physical health. And so here was this couple. They were both sick. And there, there are more, there are more um, books printed by Charles Spurgeon than any other author. Think, things that are printed by him. That go all the way back to the 1800s. And they're still being printed today. I've got a bunch of them over in my library. And they're still being printed. 150 years later. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then of course the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was discouraged. That sounds blasphemous doesn't it? But he was. The Bible calls him a man of sorrows. That doesn't mean he was always negative. But there was a specific time in his life when he became very discouraged. And I'll use the word depressed, and I'll show you why. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, 
Then saith he unto them, that's a trio, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Now pay attention to this. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he said, guys, watch you here. Here, pray with me. He said, I'm close to death. And again, notice, notice the place of the sorrow. Now, remember later on it manifested itself in his body as he sweat as it were drops of blood. Uh, scientists and doctors have not only said this is possible, but it's actually happened. And they've detailed cases where this happened. My soul is what? Exceeding sorrowful. Now, if you, if you just read that on the surface, say, oh, that's, that's really bad. It's not just sorrowful, it's exceeding sorrowful. You know, the, the, the original language, the Greek language, listen, here's what it means. Exceeding sorrowful. Listen to this. It means fully grieved. It means immersed in grief. Intensely sad and filled with sorrow all around. 360 degrees on top, on the bottom, everywhere he looked was sorrow. None of us will ever grieve like that. None of us. But the Lord Jesus knew what it was to, to be discouraged and even in these moments depressed. When I was putting this message together, I told Paula uh, Friday, I think it was, I said, I, I've got to work on this because I'm having a hard time putting it together. I know what I want to say, but I'm having a hard time putting it together. And part of the reason I was having a hard time putting it together is I didn't want to put all this on the front end because it's kind of a downer. But I felt like I needed to say this because, because you need to understand that, that discouragement is a common tactic of the enemy. And uh, there are some people in this church, some of them are not here, and uh, in your family and at work, and, and it, perhaps you, that are heavily discouraged. And maybe somebody knows it and maybe other people don't know it. And that's the point. And listen, it doesn't mean that God cannot use you. Here was Lord Jesus, Charles Spurgeon, Abraham Lincoln. And I could give other case studies. I just pulled these out, biblical and historical. It doesn't mark you. If anything, can I say this? It, it deepens you and it equips you in some ways. Listen, there's good news. You don't have to live and discouragement. But you don't just snap out of it. When I was a teenager, I went to a service, and I don't know why this this statement uh, jumped out at me, but even back then, I would take in the flyleaf of my Bible and would write down, as in Bible here, Glenn Matthews, Harold Vaughn, and different people that have said things, you know, write stuff down. And uh, I heard a preacher uh, Keith Fordham, he's an evangelist, and he made a simple statement, then he moved on. I don't know if he's ever said it again. Probably has. But here's what he said. He said, God never discourages anyone. And he didn't even say much about it. He just went on. But I, I just parked there. I don't know what else he said. So that's, that's a profound thought to me. And I wrote that down. I thought, I'm going to write that in the front of my Bible. God never discourages anyone. Because sometimes in the middle of your discouragement, you begin to blame God. Well, God, you're discouraging me. You put more on me than I can bear. You're not helping me. God never discourages anyone. Charles Stanley said this. I like this statement. Listen, disappointment is inevitable, but discouragement is a choice. That's true. It's inevitable that you're going to be disappointed. But discouragement becomes a choice. And it starts in your mind. That's why I put this under, under the mind. It affects your soul, but it starts in your mind. It's a battle. The battle for discouragement is won or lost in your mind. And for some of you, depending upon what you're battling, it's a daily discouragement. 
And for some of you, it, it's, it's several times a day, depending upon what it is. If you have a prodigal child or if you're a mother and you're raising several children. Or if you have a, you're having trouble in your marriage. Or you're having trouble at work. And you're just reminded of it all the time. What happens is, is, is you get constantly hit with discouragement. And you have, to, you have to make a choice all the time on what your focus is going to be. And, and am I going to let this dominate my attitude? Am I going to let this pull me down? And you are in charge of your attitude. If not, like I preached last week, the last two weeks, you're going to become a cynic. You'll be cynical about God. You'll be cynical about people. And then God cannot use you. Now, I ask you to turn to Matthew 11. Will you look at that? And if you would, could I recommend that you memorize these two verses? I love these verses. Matthew chapter 11, and look at verse 28 and 29. And notice this carefully. I'll read the two verses, and I'm going to come back and make a few comments on them. Matthew 11 and verse 28. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Anybody like that today? And I will give you rest. Aren't those good words? Take my yoke upon me and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest in your souls. Now, how do you find rest? Well, there are three choices that you have to make. And they're all grounded in Jesus. In fact, Jesus is all over this passage. Come unto me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly. Everything is about Jesus. But you have to choose to get your focus off of, of whatever is troubling you. It doesn't mean you ignore it. And especially if it's a physical pain or, or it's an extenuating circumstance. It just keeps nagging at you. And just ripping your heart out, perhaps. Then you're going to have to redirect your attention from from being disappointed to choose where you don't say, God, I'm not going to let that bring me down. But here's how you do it. Watch it. Watch these choices. Number one, come unto me. That's a choice. You make a choice. You've got to bring this to Christ. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's an invitation. But the response, you've got to respond to the invitation. You've got to come. Come to Christ. Not just for salvation, but come to Him with your burden. Bring, bring those things that, that laden you down. Bring your heavy burdens. You have to choose to do that. You're not always going to be able to fix it. Just bring it to Him. You may cry when you do it. You may weep and wail. You may complain a little bit when you do it, but bring it to Jesus. Notice the second choice in there. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke was an implement of work that they put upon the oxen to keep them working together. And the yoke is a metaphor for submitting to God's will. Here's what it's a choice that you're going to make to do the will of God. The song beautifully illustrated it this morning. Are you going to do the will of God, even if it's hard? Even if it's contrary to, to what you think is, is fun? The will of God is always good. God always gives His best to those who give the choice to Him. I believe that. But that's a choice. God, I'll go with you. I'll do what you want me to do. I, I love that song. We don't sing it very often. It's an old invitation song. I'll go with you in the garden. I'll go with him, with him all the way. Where he leads me, I will follow. And it's got all those little lines in it. And, and it's when you follow him, it's not always in abundance. Sometimes it's to a cross. It's to Gethsemane. When I went to Israel, that was one of the most sacred places I've ever been in the Garden of Gethsemane. A powerful place. Notice the third choice there. Learn of me. All of these are Jesus. Come unto me. Take my yoke and learn of me. Don't, don't learn about your situation. Learn about me. Learn some things about me. Learn who I am. Get to know me. 
Don't grumble about the thing all the time. Pay attention to me. Now that I have your attention, pain is one way that God uses to get our attention. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the result of all this is, is God gives you rest. Now, you may not believe it, but it is. It's not a formula for rest. It's about Jesus. Everything here is about rest is found in Jesus. But you have to choose these things. When Jeremiah, the, the prophet, was preaching to the nation of Israel, the weeping prophet, notice in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 14, Notice what he said, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness. So you're, you're soiled on the inside. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. That thou mayest be saved. Now watch what he says here. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? They're lodged in there. They live in you. They're at home in you. How long are you going to allow these, these vain thoughts? Here's what he's saying. This is your problem. It's your heart. It's your thinking. Thinking precedes behavior. That's why repentance is a change of mind. If you change your behavior without changing your mind, it's just reformation. It will not last. Change of behavior is the fruit of repentance. Repentance is is God helping you to change from the inside out. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? The reason I, I reference some of the Original language is because it it gives a broader uh, interpretation. I'm not correcting what's here. It gives it gives a deeper understanding. The word vain there means the vain. What is vain thoughts? Vain. Here's what it means. Listen, it means to work until you're fatigued and you have nothing to show for it, and you're sorrowful about it. It's exactly what that word means. You work until you're fatigued. And you have nothing to show for it, and you're sorrowful about it. Some people do that for decades. They do it all their life. They have these vain, empty thoughts, and they're tired, and they're discouraged. And Jesus is the answer. And what we do is we, rather than coming to God, we make ourselves, we worship ourselves. We become idol worshipers and we're the idol. That's in Jeremiah chapter 4. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, he preached to them. And watch what he said. He said, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now watch this. I, I am living waters and I'm a fountain. You, you can have all the water you want. A fountain of living water. But what they have done, the second evil, is they have hewed them. They created, because you can't create water. God said, this, this is something, a gift from me that I created. But you have hewed out cisterns, these, these little kind of um, receptacles. Watch this, but they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you have not only rejected me, you created your own little system, whether it was a religion or, or thinking to get, and I'm going to put it in this category I'm talking about, to deal with your discouragement. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor. No, I've got these vain thoughts. I, know I can handle this. I'm going to fake it till I make it. No, you can't. As long as you, you hold on to that broken cistern, it cannot hold water. He, he, is a, he, he is a fountain of living water. So what does it mean to be discouraged? Well, its simplest definition is discouragement is a loss of courage. When you're encouraged, you put courage in someone. God encourages us. We can encourage other people. We inspire them. A person that is discouraged, they lack inspiration. They lack courage. They lack motivation. But they also lack heart. That's interesting. The dictionary uses that. They lack motivation. They lack courage. And they lack heart. Discouragement comes from trials, pressures, failure, loss, and disappointment. 
when you're discouraged over a long enough period of time, over a sustained period of time, you begin to question your abilities. And you stop doing the things that you used to do. Say, this is not worth it. It's not working. In fact, it won't work. So you stop parenting the way you should. It's just not working. You stop investing in your marriage because you don't see any fruit. You stop doing things at work because it's just not working. Because you're discouraged. Discouragement affects your behavior. Discouragement brings you to a place where you lose confidence in God's calling. Again, as a parent, it affects you at work. It affects your ministry. It affects your marriage. It affects your health. And it affects your relationships. I found some interesting quotes about kind of described people that are discouraged. One is from a man named Thomas Fuller. He was a pastor in England in the 1600s. But these are really good quotes. Watch this. Fuller said, He that will not sail till all dangers are over will never put to sea. He that will not sail till all dangers are over will never put to sea. Because you know what he's doing? He's focusing on the obstacle rather than the opportunity. You see, when you know your why, the what will come. But when you forget the why, why you're doing it, your motivation, then the what doesn't matter. And do you know what we do today, especially in church ministry, and, and they do this with pastors a lot. You go to, they're, they're always talking about what? Well, here's, here's some things to tweak your church service. The what's. And look, I believe in some nuts and bolts. There's some, some helpful things. But the bottom line, you better understand, why are you doing this? Who are you doing this for? What is the bottom line for this? Because if you don't get that, you're, you're not going to put to sea after a while when you do not see the desired and expected results that you see from investing in your kids. <coughs> Excuse me. If you, don't, if you don't believe in the integrity and the authority of the Bible and the character of God, that God never lies, you're going to stop investing in them as the Bible teaches because, well, I'm not seeing fruit with my kids. The Bible doesn't work. We're just going to stop going to church. No, no, you, you keep on. You keep on loving them, keep, keep investing in them, keep pouring the Word of God in them. Because sometimes the soil is hard, but the Word of God is true. He that will not sail till all dangers are over will never put to sea. Are you looking at the dangers or are you looking at the destination? Discouragement makes you just see the dangers and the pain. Here's another fuller quote. This is, this is true. He says, scalded cats fear even cold water. Isn't that true? Once you've been burned, you don't return to the scene of the incident. You know, you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not doing that again. That hurt the first time. You disappointed me. I'm not going to do that again. And so we, we don't love people because somebody let us down. We don't go back to church because we had a bad church experience. Or we don't, whatever the case may be, we don't do something because we, we got scalded somewhere. And, and we're discouraged. And it taints everything that even sniffs of that particular area. I like Mark Twain's quote even better. It's along the same line, but it's richer to me. Here's what Twain said. He said, if a cat sits down on a hot stove, he will never sit on a hot stove again. He will never sit on a cold one either. You know, we never forget the pain of disappointment. And so to protect us, again, to protect us, we say, I'm not going there again. And so fear takes a place of faith. And rather than trusting, we go back to our, our own way of thinking. And we lose out on so much. The ultimate end of discouragement. 
You've heard this before. I know you have, but I want to give it to illustrate it. It's so apropos here. When I was a boy, uh, and even when I grew up, we, uh, our kids were older, we used to go to the circus. And uh, I would take the kids up there sometimes before, uh, when we didn't go, just on the back side. Used to, you could go over the Civic Center, and you get real close. Uh, some of you remember this and see where they had the animals pinned up and so forth. And we always like to go back there and, and see the, uh, the elephants back there. And I remember thinking, how do, how do those guys do that? Those are huge creatures. And, and they're there. They're not in cages. And they go back there in the concrete. They, they put these puny little stakes and, and those elephants are tons. They could pull those stakes out like that. And then I read really actually more than one article about it. Some of you know this. That when those elephants are babies, really little babies, for a long time. And they have these deep, deep um, iron steel stakes. Real deep that aren't moving. And they, they take these real thick chains made of steel they wrap it around their legs and that that stake isn't moving and that elephant's not moving and this is true you've heard it but it's true that elephants have good memories and so they 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 tug and they they can't get away they tug and they can't get away so over a period of years they're conditioned in their mind that when they feel the tug oh i can't go I'm not going anywhere. So after they've trained them enough, they know that, okay, this is a certain age where this is ingrained in their mind, and they know I'm not going anywhere. So they take them on the road. So they go outside the Civic Center. They put them under the tent. They spread the hay out. And uh, they drive a stake in, but it's not as deep as the old one. And if the elephant wanted to, and he was angry enough, he could pull that stake out. But they'll take sometimes rope, and put rope around his leg, tie it to the stake. And when that elephant begins to lumber over and, and eat the hay or pull over to whatever, talk to his sister elephant, uh, he begins to feel that, uh, you didn't know that, but I'm, I'm, I study. And he begins to feel that tug. He said, oh, I can't go anywhere, and he goes back. Because his mind says, I have a limitation. And that's what happens when you have opposition in your life, when you have difficulty. You keep hitting it. And then one day it's gone. And you could go over here, but your mind says, oh, I can't do that. And God says, yes, you can. No, no, this is, remember, I'm right here. This is, this is my limit. This is my limit right here. And so our imagined limitation keeps us from the best because we think, I don't want to get hurt. There's three stages of discouragement. First of all, there's mild discouragement. Mild discouragement are minor problems that affect our emotions. It doesn't last real long. It can last a day. It can last three days, a week, or a short period of time. And most people don't know we're even there. Our family, our closest friends would know, well, they're having a tough time, but they get over it, and they do. Maybe the problem at work you know, clears up, the kids start behaving better, the headache goes away, whatever, it just clears up. This is minor, minor discouragement, mild discouragement. Then there's a level above that, and that's strong discouragement. These are major pressures. This not only affects your emotions, but it affects your spirit. This is when it affects your attitude, and other people detect it. The way you talk, your behavior, and it becomes a part of you. The third level is debilitating discouragement. This is overwhelming problems. And it affects you physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. This is when a person is drained. They get to the point where they lack desire. They lack energy. 
and they feel like I cannot go on. And here, here's, the, here, here's the way this works, okay? First, there's disappointment. Then there's discouragement. Then there's depression. Then there's despair. Do you get that? Disappointment, discouragement, depression, despair. So, at disappointment, you need to realize, okay, this has some potential to do me some damage. Somebody at the church disappointed me. If you're not careful, you're going to get discouraged, or you'll get bitter, or both. If you don't handle that, you're headed for depression. And then when you get in despair, you're in really bad trouble. And it can happen in every arena in life. And at the root of depression and discouragement are believing these lies that the devil puts into your mind. Now, I don't know, a month ago, five weeks ago, when I started talking about this, about how the, the, the devil could put lies in your mind. And here's what he lies to you about. He lies about God's character. He lies about your circumstance. He makes it worse than it is. He lies about your past. He lies about your present. And he lies about your future. He is a liar, John A. 44, and he's the father of it. And I don't understand how he puts things in there, these things in here, but he puts these lies into your brain, and, and you begin to percolate on these things. So you got disappointed. And then the disappointment brings these lies. They don't care about me. Or you begin to receive these lies about God. And then that, that develops into discouragement. And then the lies pour on. And I'm going to deal with this in a much deeper fashion, perhaps next week. And then that becomes depression. And now stronghold is established. And you're in serious trouble, and then you've got despair, and that's where people end up taking their life. Are you here this morning, and, and Satan is battering you with his lies? God's forgotten about you. God doesn't care. You've made an irreversible mistake. There's no recovery. Nobody cares. Your best years... Are over. I had a uh, one of my closest friends had made some bad mistakes, and he was a very gifted preacher. And uh, he's two years older than I am. And he told me we were talking one day. He was had resigned from his church. We were talking. He said, "Rick, I'm thirty years old." I've already been to the mountain. My best years are over. My heart sunk. I said, that's not true. That's not true. I never forgot that conversation. But it made me think how many people feel that way. My best years are over. If I could just go back to that time in life. Hey, you got, you got good years ahead of you. I miss my kids. This morning I was getting ready and the house was empty. Paula was with uh, her brother last week, or she should have been. The house was empty. And I miss my kids, but I love the life I have with my wife now. And my future is good. Every, every part of life has sweetness, it has some honey in it. Don't, don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Those lies will, will discourage you. They, they will mire you down. David's father sent him out to see his brothers. They were out to, at the battlefield. And he said, I want you to take some, some cheese sandwiches to your brothers. So he sent all this bread and cheese. And David got there. He was a teenager. And, uh, boy, he heard some noise. He said, what's going on here? The excitement. He said, what's going on? He said, oh, one of the fellows said, there's a giant out there. He's been mocking us now for 40 days. He comes out. You'll hear him. 
And he defies us and he makes fun of God and he makes fun of us. And David found his brothers and, and he gave them the food. He said, they said, well, we're very discouraged. We're disheartened. We don't know what to do. You know the story how David killed Goliath. I want to ask you a question. Why were they discouraged? Why were they discouraged? Say, well, they were discouraged because Goliath was there. No, that's not the correct answer. And it's not a trick question. But once you see this, you're going to say, oh, yeah. Because it's why you get discouraged. why I get discouraged. It's because we believe the wrong things. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard, look at it, heard those words of the Philistine, that's Goliath. The Philistine was talking. They heard those words. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. The king was afraid. His men, the soul, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. The word dismayed there, here's what it means. It means to be broken by fear, to be beaten down, terrified, and discouraged. We can't do this. Do you know why? Because they were listening to the wrong voice. Now, why did David go out there? You know why David went? Well, he, he had faith in God. Well, that's, he did. But why did he have faith in God? Because he was listening to a different voice. When David was out there tending the sheep, is that all he was doing? No, he was meditating. He was getting to know God. He, he was writing songs about God. He was worshiping God. And when David was out there, he was listening to a different voice and he was a different person. And so what affected other people one way, it didn't affect him because he had another voice that was speaking to him. And if you do not have the right voice speaking to you, you're going to have your voice speaking to you or the voice of the enemy or the voice of other people speaking to you, and you're going to be overwhelmed with discouragement. When it came time to settle the promised land, there were two of the tribes that didn't want to cross the river. They found some really nice land on the other side of the Jordan, Gad and Reuben. They said, we like this over here. And they went to Moses and they said, hey, Mo, can we stay over here? And he met with the other guys. They said, well, yeah, okay. They could stay over there. They were really disappointed in them. And then, uh, then it came time to fight. Remember, you, you have to war for your inheritance. And they said, well, our land's over here. Moses said, wait, shall, shall your brethren go to war and you sit here? No, no. Now, just because you're, you're on this side of the river, you're going to go fight. And notice what he said to these two tribes in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 7. Look what he said. He said, wherefore discourage ye, and look at it again, the heart, the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them. You're going to discourage their heart. Sometimes people will discourage you. Sometimes your own family will discourage you. You better be listening to another voice. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 28, it talks about the spies, the majority of the spies. Ten of the twelve came back. And the people said, we can't go in the promised land. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren, this is so sad, our brethren have discouraged our heart, saying the people is greater, taller than we, the cities are great, walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakins there. You know, the majority is not always right. You need, to, you need to get the right voice. Make sure you're hearing the right voice. For you moms and dads, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be, lest they be discouraged. Dispirity, dis, excuse me, dispirited, disheartened. Disheartened. Your words are important. Your words are important. Believe in them. 
Not just, you know, there's no word in the Bible that says, well, when they're 18, they're an adult. It's not in the Bible. Now, they ought to be maturing. By the way, when, when was Jesus mature? When he was 12 years old, he was teaching the scribes. Now, yeah, I know he was God, but I'm going to tell you what, Luke 2.52 says he, he increased in knowledge, wisdom, so forth. Jesus, Jesus is on a growth track. And uh, maturity is not the same for everybody. And even my, my adult children, I, I try to invest in them. And, and my, my major job now with my kids is to encourage them and believe in them. Don't provoke your children to anger lest they be discouraged. If you want to conquer discouragement, you're going to have to go where it starts, and that's in your mind. It's in your mind. I want to talk to you about this next week. It's in your mind. It shows up in other places, but it's in your mind. My mind controls my emotions, and my emotions are so powerful, they control my actions. And this morning, your mind is either reinforcing God's truth or it's reinforcing the devil's lies. Whose voice are you listening to? Are you just listening to the world and your flesh and the devil? You're going to be very, very discouraged. Are you listening to to the voice of God? This morning, would you bring your discouragement to the Lord? Whatever it is, bring it to the Lord. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you, he said. Repent, listen, repent of the pattern of your thinking and of listening to the wrong voices. God, I've been listening to the wrong voices. Help me listen to your voice. God, I'm like that elephant that's been tagged up to the, a, a little little stake in, in, in my past or whatever. And, I, and Lord, you want me to do something else. And I've been so afraid because I associate it with, with a past hurt or whatever. And you want me to, to do something for you and to be something. But I'm so afraid. I'm discouraged. So I've just kind of shut it down. Would you bow your head with me this morning?